0: to Free For All, an episode-by-episode episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner.
1: Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm
0: Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media,
1: and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. Brandy. Whiskey, vodka, grambouille, Tia Maria, Cointreau, Grand Marnier. The Girl Who Was Death. Yes. It is The Girl Who Was Death, finally. I say finally because this is the one I'd probably be most excited to watch again. This is, <laughs> this, well, this, this this for for both of us is mm. Ground Zero. This was written by Terence Feely. Yes, well, it was, I mean, I think it was basically going to be the David Tomlin show. Mm. Um, but, but he he was so up against it; he needed a writer.
0: But this is where David Tomlin was taking more and more uh, responsibility, wasn't mm. he? He was producing, he was rewriting, he was doing some direct. He was directing. He directed this episode. Yeah, you know, he wrote uh,
1: more. He did rewrites and things this like was that. A, this. Was originally he'd, he'd already had this idea for Danger Man, hadn't he? I think it was, yes. was it was a recycled yes. concept. Mm.
0: But it would fit as a, as a Danger Man yeah. episode if you play down the camp, you know, yeah. and the, and the, and the humour slightly. I mean, it works more like a, an Avengers episode than it does a Danger Man episode.
1: Yeah, it it's a very much It feels like a sort of Emma Peel yeah. when it all went very pop art. and. Uh, but I arguably, I think, I mean, a
0: lot of people dismiss the girl who was death Fools. But I think it's arguably one of the pivotal episodes if you think about it go on because it is doing something different it's it's taking the mick out of the spy genre yes it's taking mercilessly the, yeah it's taking the mick out of the avengers and the and the campness and the humor and the surrealism of the avengers mm. within that and it's almost like a little bit of a fingers up to television at the time and if you notice at the end the final shot of number 6 before he leaves the house is he puts a clown down mm. and the clown you know, they have the, the focus on the clown. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that's very reminiscent of Test Guard F, which was introduced the year before, of the girl on the, the blackboard. Yeah, It's not the same clown, but there's, you know, that semiotic of the clown and television being connected like a test guard. Yeah, You can look at it two ways. You can look at it as the village of the clowns <laughs> or I'm not playing your clown for you. I'm not playing, you know, I'm not being the fool for you. There's a few ways you can interpret
1: that. I choose to see that as a, a bit of a dig... At television. I mean, yes, I, I agree, but it, it certainly has its cake and eats it. Mm. They're, they're, they're having colossal fun. I mean, once Kenneth Griffith shows up, every 20 seconds there's a bit of business, which is just genuinely, genuinely hilarious. It's not sort of like, oh, how, how very witty. I'll see what they're doing there. You see the dig there. Just <laughs> lovely bits, like when he says, he's a like, man, and then they st- they stand forward and he's right up against one yeah. of them. It's It's just... It's, it's genuinely comedic. Yeah. Brilliantly well done, all the way through. Well, what's quite
0: nice, I think, and it, probably intentional, is that Griffith had played Napoleon. Yes. So having him as Napoleon, a little bit like Mary Morris and Peter Pan, a yeah, a. bit of a... it's the art imitating life or art imitating art kind
1: well, of it thing. It was meant to be Hitler, of course, wasn't it? Originally, yeah, and then they changed it to Napoleon. The dictator it's okay to love.
0: A lot of people... I think perceive this episode the wrong way and I think there is a lot more depth than's given credit to this episode. Mm. But the storybook that the that is used as the, you know, yeah. the conceit to move through the the narrative. A lot of people I think miss the point of that that this is a fictional representation. It's a fictional representation of a fictional representation. (laughs) It's a story within a story. It's a play within a play. It's like Hamlet, isn't it? You know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. You know, the play within the play. Um, And I think a lot of people miss that. And I think it's a great opportunity. Like I said, it's a great opportunity to kind of have a little bit of a a dig at what's going on on television at the time. Yeah. And which the prisoner was not towing the line with. He was doing something completely different.
1: Yeah. And it would have been swamped. The TV was it was still it was still a kind of post Bond reaction. Mm. So ev- suddenly everything was spies mm. for the for years after Doctor No, and it continued. They, oh, yeah. As the Americans say, cookie cutter television. Mm.
0: You know, it, they were just these basic you know fifty fifty two minute episodes where the the plots are all the same. It was basically just murder of the week or case of the week. Yeah, but audiences weren't getting bored of that; <laughs> they just loved it. But the Prisoner wasn't that. The Prisoner wasn't an anthology, but it. Kind of works as an anthology, yeah, with a loose narrative that threads it together with the spy trope, but it doesn't need it. It's this is why it's still so compelling. It's so confusing and compelling. I think it
1: possibly, I think for, it suffers possibly for two reasons. One, it's it's down the back end of the of the list in terms of its being shown, uh, and I think people have associate that with the period where they kind of run out of ideas. Mm-hmm. That's the that seems to be the popular take. Yeah. And the other thing is that it's, it seem, it, it's kind of marred by McGowan's unavailability, which involves an awful lot of back-screen projection. Because this is still at that point, isn't it, where he's, he's just think, yeah, coming back from... He Zepra. may have even sort of been called back. Mm. So I think, I think they had a schedule uh, for how many weeks, which they had to sort of stretch out. Mm. And uh, <laughs> Frank, Frank Mayer, yeah, uh, we need you again. A lot. Actually. A lot, yes. Could you fit into the Sherlock Holmes <laughs> yeah. please? I mentioned Bond before. I mean, that's the other target. Mm. And of course, you've got this um, little bit of history with Magoon, Um and, and so you've got, I mean, with Potter with the um, radio controlled shoe brush yeah. and stuff like that. Which, Chin up, uh, yeah. Potter. <laughs> it certainly wasn't cricket. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's, there's quite a few, isn't there? Like, yeah, like you say, with the shoe, um, but also the Mission Impossible ripoff. Yeah, with the uh, with the, the record. record. I didn't know. I didn't know that was Canner. Yes, it's Alexis Canner. He, because he had to go and do go back to the studio to overdub his uh, photographer scene, mm. and he also did the the record scene as well. That's just lovely. With the with a gag as well. Yeah, getting the money's worth out of him. Oh yeah. Yes, yeah, it's a
1: very, very cliché gag, isn't it? Yeah, but it's yeah, But, it's <laughs> but it reminds me of the, the, funny. the, the Python one with the, the lumberjack sketch. Mm. I thought Hearst played well, sir. What? I thought Hearst played well, sir. <laughs> you know, the record yeah. speaking back to you. <laughs> Which, came, yeah, that was after. That could have been a lift from this. Yeah, yeah, who knows? So it was a good gag. Mm. So, I mean, the gags in this land, yeah. they, you know, it's not just silly uh, for the sake of being silly, this—I mean, there, there, there is some silliness. There is some, you know. With, I mean, the disguise
0: isn't fooling anybody. I, well, d- <laughs> you know, why would you? First of all, if he's in disguise as a proper secret agent, dressing up uh, as Sherlock Holmes, complete with. Deerstalker and Victorian whiskers and all that kind of stuff. You're just going to draw attention to yourself. Yeah. It's the worst disguise imaginable. And then he's sat in the Turkish bath in full Sherlock Holmes <laughs> tweed, isn't he? And I, and I think that's a dig. That is a dig at the spy tropes, at these kind of, like Mission Impossible, with these really over-the-top yeah. disguises. Spies. Yeah.
1: Undercover spies making themselves as... Stand out more than actually blend in. What's what's another word for undercover spies making themselves as obvious as possible? Yeah. Yeah. But Bond used to do that. Well, yeah, well, that's what Roger Moore always used to say, wasn't it? He, this a spy who's supposed to be undercover, and yet every barman in the world knows him. Ah, Mr. Bond, your suite is ready. Yeah, of oh, usual. Well, Mr. Bond, your credit has already been approved.
0: What's <laughs> it was the point? MI6 would be like Bond. We need a word. Yeah. Yeah. Covert.
1: Stop. You're you're a bit visible. Yes. Had we say it?
0: So that's why all every villain says, "Ah, been expecting you, Mr. Bond." <laughs> <laughs>
1: He's just one of his henchmen who goes, Bond's here. Yeah. How do you know? <laughs> he just well, bought some drinks. He's been... <laughs> Look has how a friend works down the bar. He, he, they all know him. <laughs> yeah, for a spy, he's pretty he, bad. Yeah, <laughs> he tips. So he's, he's good. And he always has the same drink. He's great. <laughs> yeah. The other spy trap,
0: of course, is the, um, the sports car, mm. uh, which is a Lotus Elan, isn't it, in this episode? Yes. Well, it was going to be the prisoner's car. Oh, right. He went to see... Uh, he went to the Lotus manufacturers, yeah, and he saw the. Uh, well, he was looking at the Alans, uh, apparently, and saw the Lotus Seven, ah. and that spoke to him more. Mm. I think there's a quote, there's a line where, um, in an interview he says it. I looked at this car, this car looked at me, and I thought, that's it, that's the prisoner's car. Yes, and and the rest is history. But that could have been. Can you imagine the opening sequence with the <laughs> the Lotus Alan coming? Down? I mean, it looked. I mean, it's great. It's a sports car. It's not as iconic, though. No. You know, and as soon as he sees that, it's like, that's the car. That is the car. It represents freedom. It represents a rebellion.
1: Yes. You know, and there it is. And weren't they, to a certain extent, kit cars? You did sort of have to do a certain amount of construction and yourself. Like he says in many happier terms, I built that car with my own hands. Yes. I know every nut cog. <laughs> so, you know, would he would have had that sort of... Yeah, you not. It's you couldn't just be a, a, a wishy washy enthusiast. You'd mm. have to be a real keen car guy yeah. with a mechanical mind to sort of invest yourself in it. So it's not just a car. It's, it's
0: well, that's what the, the audiences want to see. I mean, it's all right for Mike Pratt in Randall and Hopkirk, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and um, Joe Fabiani in Department Esse both drove the same car <laughs> to save money. But you know, McGowan, you know, he's, he's playing the spy, you know, and we know he wants to draw attention to himself. <laughs> And I think a lot of people maybe misconstrue this episode in that this is John Drake in this episode, or this is
1: what, the what do, evidence to suggest this is John Drake. Uh, what's the um, the episode of Danger Man where because you know he walks into the pub mm. and he's dressed, he's got the cap and the white coat on? Yeah, there's similar the costume, very, isn't there? To which episode was that?
0: The Paper Chase yeah, yeah. episode, which has many. Prisoner Connections. I mean, it was directed by Patrick McGowan, guest starred people like Aubrey Morris. Peter Swanick. Peter Swanick. But in that episode, McGowan wears uh, an outfit or two outfits very similar to the ones he wears in The Prisoner. Yeah. You know, with that white leather cap he wears and the jacket, but also his, his prisoner arrival suit he wears within that episode
1: as well. Ah. And there's a, do you think that was a little bit deliberate? Because well, I, I mean... There's yes. Yes, there's, yeah, there's, there's a playful element to this episode, Marie. I think, and also it had already started running by this point, and you, I think, there would have been loads of people talking about, it, so, oh, this new, the new McGovern thing, mm. where John Drake's in this uh, village, mm. and then it's not John Drake. So sort of. no, it's like it's like you know, it's like Danger Man, but it's in colour. Mm. So John Drake there, yeah, he gets kidnapped, and he's in this. It's not John. So that, that would have been. So this, I think, this would have been a nice kind of. Well, why let's 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 mess with him a little bit. Yes. And I'm not going to say anything. Well, the thing is, it's like I say, it's a story within a story.
0: Mm. So it's a fictional representation. He's he's reading a book to children, and there are no, there's no text mm. in that book. They're just images. Yes, he got the images of the cricket match and the, of the of the plane, you know. Um, so it's maybe. If you could look at it in the way that a, a parental figure or an avuncular figure sat down with children, he's flicking through the book, he's reading a the story, there's no text, so he's making the story up. There's two ways you can take that. At the end, he says, and that's how I defeated the mad, sci- the mad scientist. Or you can take it as he's making up a story using the images as inspiration. So we start with a cricket match. Mm. So he's weaving that story for the children's entertainment because... The, those pictures are already printed in that book. In the real world, yeah. uh, logic, they're already there, glued in. Yeah, he would construct a narrative around that those images, and then to say to the children at the end, "That's how you know, and that's how I defeated the evil scientist," is just a way of say, and nodding a wink to say, yes. you know, that was me in that story," <laughs> you know, <laughs> all along and of thing. So I, I, I don't give it too much credence. You, you, you could have even come out and said, "Hi, I'm John Drake," it wouldn't make any difference.
1: But Because it's a story within a story. One thing, one thing just occurred to me, and I'm only saying it because it made me feel very proud mm. that I'd sort of come up with something brand new. Because mm. uh, he's called Mr. X. Mm. And what happens to him when his, to his photo when he gets uh, after he resigns? As in the X's? Yeah. So that's his new name. Oh, uh, okay. There you are. I think that'll catch on. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> Trust me, Moving that, on, that'll that'll be that'll be a thesis. Mister X was a trope though, wasn't it? Yeah, I know, but I, I thought you know what? I thought that would go down better, Chris. <laughs> do
0: you know? No, t- to be fair though, I'm, I, as much as I'm laughing, I, I, I do think that's quite it's quite a good observation. Actually, is the Finally. X's because it didn't have to be an X. I mean, yeah, it's you know when you cross something out when, on a typewriter, yeah, they would use an X. But I, I, I think that's a quite a nice a uh, link between the two but wouldn't he be mr x
1: <laughs> now you're just, trying just to, really to spool my I'm grand sorry. theory
0: <laughs> there's something else in here which i've never noticed before oh go on and it's in the pub scene before your favorite yes moment because <laughs> i remember that time for my birthday you bought me the sticker yeah. for the the which I still have, and I haven't used it. And me, I've got the last one. It's probably one. worth a fortune on eBay mm. now, isn't it, because they don't sell it anymore. But the, uh, you know, the Albertus variant. Yes. yes. This font they use is not the Albertus variant font. On the, you've just been poisoned? Yes. Ooh. And I'd never noticed that before. How so? The Albertus font, the E, is closed and rounded. Yeah. So it's like, as you're it writing it. It's like a e. capital E. No, this is still uh, a lowercase e. Yeah. It's an actual Albertus e. So if you look at the village font, they've modified the lowercase e. Yeah. So it's like the inverted three, whereas the Albertus e is closed. Mm. So next time you watch that, compare that e against the village e's, you'll notice it's different. It's actually the Albertus font, not the village variant. The reason I bring this up is that they've gone to the trouble of using the albertus font the original albertus font rather than the village variant to suggest i think that just or just to show that this story is not taking place within the world of the village it's something separate
1: yeah well i I, i'm 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 98 sure it was just a minor screw up but i love may (laughs) theory. i know no no no, 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 it it works that's your theory Mm. is is, it works perfectly I
0: i mean we haven't i mean i haven't noticed that in Thirty years. I only noticed it watching this episode yesterday. Yeah, that the font is different. It was nice to see Harold Baron's return. It
1: was from uh, Free for All. <laughs> it was, and I can see now. There's a lovely, lovely bit of sort of uh, comic sort of timing. Mm. I mean, it is no biting or think uh, no, see, no biting or kicking. Yeah. Except in moderation, now I get this <laughs> <Yeah>. wonderful pause. <laughs> he's like, I, I, I can wring I can a gag out of this. Yeah. And and of course, McGowan
0: loved the not he? He loved having him around, by I, all accounts. I'd
1: love to see more of him, because just uh, McGowan, who you can imagine... I can't imagine McGowan finding anyone yeah. funny. The concept of Patrick McGowan, yes, he's hilarious. Talking about the, the children's storybook,
0: because this obviously is the, the central idea behind the, the episode. It also reminds me a little bit of Wizard of Oz, yeah, and how you perceive the events that take place within Wizard of Oz, Mm. because Dorothy is in this sepia tinted world with her, you know, aunt and uncle, and she meets people around the town on the lead up, and then the the Twister comes and she wakes up in Oz, and suddenly the people she's met, their faces are now transposed onto these characters. And it's almost, in, and they, I think they did this in Return to Us, is it becomes part of her coping mechanism, a little bit like Pan's Labyrinth, yes. almost, where these characters, she's, she's telling a story in her head, but she's having to cast them mentally,
1: yeah.
0: which I've always thought about The Prisoner. It's almost like a mental casting by number six. Was that Peter Pan? And Peter Pan, Pope yeah. always well. the dad, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's that very basic childhood take. I mean, Disney do it with animals, you know, they put the human characters into animal bodies, don't they, to, to sell the idea to children. And it's a very childish kind of technique in, in creating these characters' faces. So if the children are listening to this story, say, no, this hero was playing cricket and all that kind of stuff, the children may see number six as the hero and cast him in their imaginations as the hero as that story is being told. So all these events, as wacky and bonkers as they are, could actually just be the way that the children are perceiving the story that's being told to them, Mm. using the images as as a kind of starting point. This is why I think this episode deserves a lot more credit than it gets.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's it's, it's a meal in itself. Yeah,
0: there's so much more you can read into this, I think. And, of course, that goes back to all the childhood elements within The Prisoner, not just in Once Upon a Time, but the childish music that's being used. Yes. Pop goes the weasel. I mean, in this one, the, you have the lyrics from Rubber Dub Dub, don't you, for mm. the Butcher Baker Candlestick Maker. So there's a lot of childish elements within this. Yeah. So that's just, that's just a, a theory I have about how this episode plays out. But that also kind of explains why this character is maybe perceived as John Drake by a lot of people. It's because there's a lot of these elements that they're putting Drake, like we were talking about Koolshoff technique, Mm. They're putting Drake onto the character. Yes. Right, it doesn't really matter. It's a story about a spy that's being told to children. This also could explain that really strange, surreal car chase. Yes. Where she turns and she spins her hand and everything starts to go a little bit dreamy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do you know what? I mean, I assumed it's some sort of uh, Mickey take of the obviousness of back projection. Mm. And, it's, and again, it's such a trope. Of all spy shows, and it was just kind of a gentle sort of mick. <laughs> he's clearly not driving, yeah. he's in a studio. In fact, let me show you, but it's actually really effective. Yeah, but they've done that themselves the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in yeah. fact, every time you see McGoohan's face, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, it's in front of a back projection screen. Yes. We have the butcher, baker, and
0: candlestick maker. With their nominative determinism names. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mr. Doe, the
0: baker. Yes.
1: And that's, that's a very Avengers thing. Yes. They're all um, what was, There was one where they have to go to some honey specialist or saying, yeah. ah, Mr. Bumble here. <laughs> you know, they're, they're all, every time they have to go to some sort of strange shop. Again, it comes from childhood, doesn't it? If you watch any
0: of these children's shows, mm. you know, you'll have Windy Miller... Yes, in, you know these works. Them. <laughs> it's it's not nominative determinism, but it's allowing a child to understand the context. Yeah, isn't it? You know, Sergeant Lockett, the policeman. Yeah, you know, or <laughs> it, th- these types of names. Yeah. that allow a child to make that connection. And it is a very childish episode in many many ways. Yes, you know, it, it could easily without the violent areas of the
1: guns, it could easily be a, a kids show. Yeah, even even the, when a gun goes off, it's kind of funny when the soldiers actually shoot accidentally shoot themselves. Yes, it's done in a sort of very Keystone Cops kind of way. Yes, exactly. sped yeah. up a little bit,
0: but the bright colours of those French uniforms, you know, they 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 add to it. It's almost like a Batman henchman, isn't it? A little bit. <laughs> yes. You know, when like when the Joker would turn up or or the Penguin, and they'd have these henchmen in that, various. That could have been like Napoleon. Could have been. Uh, yeah. A, a Batman villain. Yeah. There's an argument there that it's having a little dig at Batman, which was out around the same time, wasn't it? it was about yes, 66. it would have been a bit
1: of an influence. Yeah,
0: but having these kind of multicolored henchmen, <laughs> bumbling henchmen at that as yes. well. Yeah, it is. You know, there's parody there. There's pastiche of other shows of the genre.
1: Oh yeah, it's a, it's a. I mean, from the right from the off, you can tell it's a, it's a comedy. Mm. There's a, there's a reason this is such an enjoyable show. It's uh it's a, this is a pure comedy. Mm. But you know, I mean, one of the things that really struck out at me—I can't remember from the first seeing it—was just how incredibly good the editing is. How it's all, all the bits, those kind of jump cuts. That you know, when the woman slaps him on the face, and yeah. it cuts to him sort of doffing his cap. <laughs> and but it's just really effective uh, editing. Mm. It's a it's a well it's kind of well made episode, well directed, mm. well shot. I mean, the, obviously they had to sort of work around a little bit of. Uh, Go in absence. But it doesn't matter. It it it's the way it's put together is immensely professional. But it's quite well documented,
0: isn't it? At the time that the editing for the prisoner was like nothing anybody had seen. I and mean, we don't generally put it into context, but at the time, you've just got to look at what else was being shown. Mm. As we famously documented, the four angle I were on BBC One. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of these shows were still these cooker-cutter shows in a very generic production. Yes. You know, and this was doing something different. And from the... I mean, there are some poor edits, but there's some fantastic shots that just kind of draw you in and unlike nothing else yeah. that's happening on television at the time. And
1: really sort of sp-
0: speed up the process. Yeah. So just, it whizzes through. Well, this. it's like listening... To, the first time I listened to Pet Sounds mm. by the Beach Boys because everyone had recommended it to me and I listened to it and I thought... Huh. just sounds like the Beach Boys, which of course it does, because I've had years to you know to for those songs to seep into popular culture and you know, but you start listening to other things that are happening at the time, yeah, and you're like, now I get it, now I see why this is different, mm. and it's the same with the Prisoner. I think you have to put it up against what's being shown, and even other ITC shows after the Prisoner don't learn from the Prisoner. They go back to that generic no, structure. It, it, didn't,
1: it didn't lead to, to a sea change, I suppose. Maybe because it was felt at the time, at certainly a, 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 at um, corporate level, mm. that this was actually a bit of a failure. So mm. it's like, don't do that again.
0: Yeah, because uh, the money, because grades famously withdrawn the money at this point. Mark Stein's gone. Mm. You know, there's a, a crew change. There's a you know changes at the top. McGowan's worried about money. The pressure's getting to him. He's going to do Ice Station Zebra just to. Help fund and finish it. He wants to finish this. Yes, and of course, yeah, you're right. I think they see this as a
1: failure. Yes, let's not get experimental ever again. Yes. What are we doing next? <laughs> the persuaders. <Yeah. laughs> Interesting enough, when we're talking about those
0: um, those French henchmen who are not French,
1: <laughs> as French, we know, French.
0: <laughs> is uh, one of them is Joe Gladwin, who you might remember from the British sitcom Last of the Summer Wine. No.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, well, I studiously avoid watching that it was as an act of rebellion. And if you're not familiar with Last of Summer, it's one of the. I think it was the longest running sitcom. Oh, ever. Ever, yeah. It was almost consecutive, wasn't it? It ran for so long. It was. It was. It was a fantastic sort of pensionable age uh, <laughs> yes. sort of last job of so many people. Actually, it is actually the village
0: for actors. <laughs> isn't it? Because what do you what do, what do you do with an actor who's now become typecast or they've got too old for a part or the series is finished, they can't get any work? You create a TV show that features octogenarians. Well, anyone from 60 onwards, really. Right. Uh, I'm, and, I'm writing this down. Yeah. I think this is a
1: fantastic <laughs> it's idea. It's true,
0: isn't it? It's it's like, um, you know, who turned up in that? You had Burt Kwok. He yes, turned up, didn't yes. he? Yes. <laughs> Actors from a lower low. <laughs> and, uh, or they, you know, it's almost like they put out to pasture. Yes. In Yorkshire for the last of the summer. Wine.
1: And then every now and then, like Bill Owen or yeah. something, they'd be like, the Ro- Ro- Roland Walter Dutton, they'd get this black thing saying, yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> He's been ridden out He's died. And they couldn't escape Even if they were in a bath Running down a hill That's, that's like the littlest hobo In the child in a wheelchair In the frisbee isn't it it's, it's,
0: You think of those episodes And that's what you think about It's a bath on wheels Going down a
1: hill and it, But that wasn't for comedy They were trying to escape Yes Rovers chasing yeah. <laughs> instead, instead of Mary Morris You've got Nora Batty They could recast the prisoner no, Seriously that's a fantastic concept bra I? In the village. The
0: other, the other trope, of course, is the, the elaborate set-ups to kill somebody. Oh, you, that is very Batman. Yeah, and there's Austin Powers... Yes. Um. why don't you just kill him? Yeah, well, um. yeah, well. But it's true, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's It's for the audience, of course, isn't it? Just to show how maniacal these people are and how evil they are by going to these lengths yeah. and ultimately fail. This is where it falls apart, is that she sets up this sequence of continually evil plots to kill him, yet leaves a little note ready for him to find when he beats her. So by
1: knowing that, what, why doesn't she just kill him? Oh yeah, but the thing is, she's she keeps saying she's falling in love with him.
0: Yeah, but and, she's going and, and, and to this. So it's all
1: part of. A, she likes a challenge. But uh,
0: she's going to these enormous lengths <laughs> to kill him. But then she knows he's not going to die, so she leaves a note for him to say, "Go to the pub. Go to the Turkish baths."
1: It's well. It's he's playing her game. It's just a waste of time. Oh, it's a complete waste. Of, <laughs> But up. that, again... She, she must have spent weeks setting up the yeah, village.
0: but I like that. It does crumble, but it's not the prisoner that's crumbling. It's, no, it's the just, story it's within just, the story that's crumbling. Any kind of narrative yeah. logic. They're taking the mick out of logic, aren't they? You can, you can actually forgive it for that. And you can see it's actually quite
1: clever in how they're doing this. Yeah. It's quite clever how he gets out of a lot of the stuff. I remember, yeah. the, I remember the time of the candle snake oh, well done. That's yeah. Good. That's it's good. a bit like Saw. <laughs> it's a proto version of Saw. Yes, Saw You certificate. Yeah. You could fall in love with the 60s just watching this one episode. Mm. I I kind of did. Yeah. My I, I was properly into all things 60s. I, uh, 92 was my. It was the, it was the 25th anniversary of the Prisoner uh, yeah. of Sergeant Pepper of, you know, all things 60s were being sort of... Of course, everyone, all the uh, players at the time were still alive. So everyone was being sort of wheeled out for interviews mm. and South Bank shows. And it was just alive again. And I, 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 I don't think I listened to any contemporary music mm. for, for 12 months. Yeah. I got so hooked into the 60s. And it probably would have been from yeah. watching this. Yeah. I'm Justine Lord. I was in love with her. Yeah. I think I actually went out with a girl simply because she, she looked, looked like-, like Justin Lord. <laughs> and she is so specifically 60s mm. uh, glamorous and beautiful. Yes. I'm amazed she didn't... She, I mean, she's kind of iconic in this, in the, the whites, everything. Most of those clothes were hers, yeah. isn't it? She, but she, she, but she, a she didn't really... Helmet. Yeah, she didn't go on to become... No. I mean, she was a supporting actor in a lot of uh,
0: productions. But only for a couple of years. Yeah.
1: She was... Uh, just, st- I couldn't keep my eyes off her. She's such a... And again, a little bit of the Annette Andre. Yes. Uh, I, th- I think he, she ruffled McGood's feathers a little bit. I don't think mm. they got on. But um, I, unlike Annette Andre, apparently she just laughed it but off. But there's not, there's not a lot of interaction between the two characters, though, really. Not in terms of their sort of being together when they're yeah. filming. There's only really the, like lighthouse scene isn't it yeah well even
0: then it's there's very few shots of them in the same shop together well yes i suppose another question but this is a question that's been asked many times but it's something to think about is why are the children in the village (laughs) i mean you mentioned that when we talked about change of mind yeah but there's i mean there's two of the kids were uh, siblings yeah but in real life but it's like why are they in the village. Was it a case that both their parents were spies and they've had to just take the whole family? Sure.
1: I mean, surely in the village, uh, two captured people, a man and a woman, might end up sort of getting together and having kids. That's also a possibility as well, isn't it?
0: Um, but you would see more children, I think.
1: Oh, yeah. It's not like. It's not like but the thing is, if you. In, the thing is,
0: if you. In that situation, you don't want to, them to have children because that's more a drain on the resources.
1: Too true. I mean, he can't stop people sort of... uh,
0: Well, the village can.
1: Yeah, in fairness, they can. Put something in the tea, put some bromide in the tea. Yeah, I I think it's... Ultimately, it's just nonsense. I think Mm. they just... uh, It's the kind of thing, well, look, this isn't an episode where people are going to be expecting this to make any sense. Yeah, Yeah, there are kids in the village for for five minutes. Yeah. They probably wheeled him in. I don't think it makes any sense. But it it is is quite an interesting idea, because there are loads of people there of kind of child-rearing age... Mm. It's not retired people in their 70s. It's people like Annette Andre there.
0: But anyway, the moment we've been waiting for. Go on. The Drake debate. It's here. So we asked on our Twitter page, what was your take on the Drake debate? Now, we had quite a few people respond. Thank you very much for that. And the choices were, yes, he is John Drake. No, he isn't. And it's irrelevant. And the wisdom of crowds took over... <laughs> And it's a relevant one. Now, that's my personal point of view.
1: I think it is irrelevant
0: that he's yeah, John Drake. Yeah, but
1: you know what's really surprised me? Mm. Coming in at number two was, yes, he is. Yes. Yes, he is. Beats, no, he isn't. That That threw me a curve. Let's see what our Twitter followers thought.
0: Yes. So Andy says, I think your man himself said he wasn't Drake, so I'm going with him. Okay. Fine words. Yeah, And McGowan did state, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That it wasn't. So Ron says, John Drake's colleague Potter appeared in The Girl Who Was Death, but they would have had to pay the creator of Danger Man if they had named him as Number Six. X06 Future Spy, if you haven't heard, uh, check out X06 Future Spy on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I love the way this is produced. A little plug for them. But it's like a lost... Sci fi TV show yeah. from this era. <laughs> but the way it's recorded, the, the performances, it just fits in. It is almost like a, a relic of that time. It, there's a lot of love goes into yes, it. So no, give just, it a listen. Yeah. So X06 says, I think it's irrelevant, but my feeling is he was a high position government scientist involved in the space program. Now, Alex Cox goes with this theory, doesn't he? That he was a well, that, rocket that's, scientist. Well, that
1: is his theory. That's yeah. the kind of the, uh, the big reveal. Uh, uh, of his, his book, book, isn't it? Yeah. That number Six is actually a, a rocket scientist. Yeah.
0: It's just a credible theory. Yeah. It's just kind of... It goes with the irrelevant, which, mm. is, which, is our, um, which is our poll result, really. Yes. But if he's not Drake, then who is he? And that, you know, he's just... it's just this one interpretation, isn't it? Yeah. He is every man. Yeah. Paul says there are clues in that episode, but the biggest giveaway was in Danger Man when John Drake made the suggestion that old spies should be relocated to a secret place where they could be watched go! he is number one. Ah. Well, well which episode? I'm not entirely sure which episode that was. But to be fair to Paul, I have heard that th- there is a line in Danger Man where that is actually posited. Mm. But I'm not entirely sure. Token Ukrainian says, I tend to think he is somebody like Drake, but not necessarily Drake, similar enough that he might as well be him
1: without needing to actually be him. I'm I'm with that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, that, I well, think yeah. that in essence, well, we asked Rick Davey about this and he was quite interesting, but he was he was pretty definite. In fact, uh, in fact, this is what he said.
2: They're not the same character, and I think if you believe they are the same character, you've missed the entire point of the entire Prisoner series, is how I view it. But if you want to look at it from a just on-screen perspective, the reason they're not the same character is that John Drake lives in a different house to number six. He works in a different office to number six. He's not engaged in number Is he drives a different car to number six. He seems to possibly have a different job to number six. He has a completely different personality to number yeah. six. He has different bosses that number six has. If you, you can't, apart from the fact that he's the same actor, you can't get two different sets of, of conflicting characterizations as between John Drake and Patrick McGowan. The only reason we can have the debate is that at no point in The Prisoner, unless you think his name is Peter Smith, which I would argue, there's a case for saying that. That's, um, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's <laughs> this debate is because Number Six never tells anybody what his name is. Uh, number Six is essentially, although he the hero of the piece, he's essentially a fairly unpleasant man. He, he barks. He barks at anyone. Uh, you know, he's not particularly nice to women, uh, apart from apart from his own wife. And whereas John Drake is an absolute gentleman, and unflappable throughout the entire tenure of uh, uh, of Danger Man. Only a couple of times do you see him crack slightly whereas you see number six crack all the time mm-hmm. i can't see any similarity between the characters whatsoever i understand where people come in terms of oh well he was obviously avoiding paying royalties which was always george markstein's claim yeah um, but the prisoner was the most expensive tv series ever produced Lou grade had already secured the rights to danger man for a fourth series if they if patrick mcgoon wanted this to be about john drake being imprisoned in a village. He only had to say to Lou Grade, can this be John Drake, please? Oh, yeah, I'll pay for the royalties. And he would have done, because mm. he'd already secured the royalties anyway for another series of Danger Man. They'd have just done Danger Man season four is about John Drake being imprisoned. They'd have just done that. So the only argument that does hold water is to say, well, he is John Drake because he's everybody. So he's John Drake, he's Kai, he's Chris, he's Rick Baby, he's everybody. So, yes, he is John Drake, but only because he's every, every one of us, mm. because the allegory of the prisoner is that he is anybody in existence, because we are all prisoners of the world that create, we create around us. That's the, the entire tenet of the series, really. Mm. So on the Drake debate, I'm afraid I'm very firmly in the camp of, no, they're not the same character, because there is nothing similar about them, other than some clothes and the fact that the actor is the same. Yeah.
0: Because yeah. <laughs> that episode I watched the other week, um, the one that oh, I forgot what it's called now, but he's wearing very similar clothes, isn't he? To, uh,
1: well, I, th- I think sorts. in The Girl Who Was Death
0: in particular,
1: I think McGuin was having a little bit of fun Trying, yeah. to, trying to muddy the water. He, he realised by this point, I think people were starting to analyse, perhaps overanalyze things. And I think he was throwing a few... i But he go
0: reading some in the water. He's reading a children's story. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's just anyway, what he's telling them.
2: Oh, yeah. You're exactly right, Chris, that, that the girl who was deaf is... He's reading a story. The character that we see throughout the episode, other than the last two minutes, isn't number six. It's a character called Mr. X mm-hmm. in a children's story about a secret agent. That's not the number six character we're seeing. We're seeing number six read a story about a completely different character. Now, in that, of course, they're going to put references to Danger Man. There's also references, though, to James Bond in there and yeah. to Sherlock Holmes. Are we saying that number six is James Bond? No, we're not. We're only saying it's John Drake because Potter turns up. Now, what's interesting about the Potter character from Girl That Was Death It's played by the same actor that plays him in the last two episodes of Danger Man. But the actor himself said, oh, I played it as a completely different character. In Danger Man, I'm an upper-class fop with a twiddly moustache wearing a suit. And in in Girl Who Was Death, I'm kind of this working-class sort of field agent, you know, hands-dirty field agent. They're completely different characters. But there's a nod to the viewers to say, you know, you're watching Danger Man here. Um, But that doesn't mean that number six is John Drake. It just means that they're giving a nod to the audience to say, this week, we're telling you a secret agent story. What's the secret agent story that you all know best? It's Danger Man. So we're just going to play it like a Danger Man episode. It was based on a Danger Man storyline. That's how you end up with it. But that yeah. doesn't mean that the characters are the same person.
0: So interesting, food for thought. But we have to be
1: objective because there's no answer to this. No, but and, and something else that muddies the water a little bit mm. is that George Markstein was absolutely convinced that it was John Drake. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I suppose maybe we've been a little bit dismissive of Markstein in, in the past in terms of the fact that this is McGuin's creation. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a lot of, I mean, Darren Nesbitt uh, was very pro-Markstein. It was mm. kind of, oh, Markstein had to sort of rewrite a lot of this. And he, he was crediting Markstein with very much almost like a 50-50 thing. Yeah. And I think Markstein probably going into this would have seen that as, as well. Uh, we're doing this. It was only when he realized we really means you. And yeah. he thought, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm going to work on Special Branch.
0: But it doesn't hurt, hurt the series for Mark Snyder to say, oh, this is Drake. We can move no. in because you're watching it as Drake and you've already got that empathy with the character because well, you know who the character we is. We've said
1: before that one of the reasons why the first few episodes were things like A, B, and C and they mm. bumped those to the, the beginning was so that audiences might have that sort of. More, you know, they, they weren't kind of free for all. Yes, they weren't sort of dense political. Less allegory, well, uh, no allegory. These agree. were more sort of fun caperish things. Yeah. So the audiences, without without explicitly stating, this is still this is Danger Man Part Two. Yeah, you still had that. You could you could pull the audience from one one show over to the other. <laughs> Whereas had sex, episode two been Dance of the Dead, they would have just, oh god, no, this is sorry, I, I thought I was watching something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in this this. This whole episode, girl who was death. Mm. I, I think he they are enjoying playing with the, you know, dangling it on like a worm on the end of a hook. Yes, book. yes. He is might be John Drake actually. No, he's not. He's not. He's not, even blessed even than they. By sheer coincidence, yeah. one of the, the guy playing the bowler, who very brilliantly manages to sort of bowl his face straight right, into the into camera, the camera yeah. which is a brilliant shot <laughs> it, isn't it is It is. Yeah. Dun, da, dun, dun, <laughs> uh, is uh, is called John Drake in real life <laughs> and apparently he kept getting like, a lot of uh, fan mail thinking oh wonderful somebody's yeah. going to tell me how good my fast bowling w- oh no Really loved you in Danger, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, George Baker, of course, plays number two in Arrival, hmm. uh, in an interview said he wasn't playing the same character. But Mark Stein, like you said, the quote was, there was no mystery, Six was a secret agent called Drake. The film librarian, Tony Sloman, claimed continuity sheets said Drake when he joined. Ah. ah the plot thickens. Yeah. But Christopher Benjamin, who plays Potter, said he wasn't consulted or told that it was the same character as in his character of Potter. He didn't play it the same way either, by his own admission. So there are mostly opinions, and the many apocryphal statements are made in interviews by actors that contradict yeah.
1: other actors and other production crew members. But that's grace. That's ex- it's kind of that's exactly what but, the, it's, it kind of goes to the heart of what yeah. prisoner is. It's kind of. A question that can't possibly be answered, mm. but the, the, the constant questioning and the arguing mm. is kind of part of the whole fun. Yeah, absolutely. There is another kind of nail
0: in the not-Drake coffin, though. Mm. It's that the very first season of Danger Man, he has an American accent. Yes. So Drake, in season one of Danger Man, is American. And then that, and then that accent starts to soften to become more like yeah. the number six yeah. accent. So it's like the character is evolving. But we have to remember, it is a character. There's a lot to think about there. It's, the thing is, we can't answer this. We're never going to be able to answer this because there's no definitive answer. We can only present what the people involved have said, and it depends on which camp you're in. Yeah. If you're on the Markstein camp of yes, it was, or the Magoon camp of no, it isn't. I think Magoon was quite happy at the beginning to let audiences think it was Drake, but as the prisoner started to evolve, and as we can see... Through the production of The Prisoner, there's a lot of, you know, throwing stuff against the wall and hoping it'll stick. Mm. And that's not in any disrespect to the series. You know, McGowan's gone on record and when people have asked him, what's this about? And he said, I don't know. Yes. You know, and he's waiting for creativity to come in
1: and to form something around it. And he's, I think... He said to Harold Barons, didn't he? yeah. Well, Harold Barron said that he Well, he he claims that he said, yeah, I've I've no idea. I can tell you one thing, I have
0: no idea. If he's no idea of that, or maybe that's just a quick way of just saying, I could tell you, but it's easier to say, I don't know. Yes. You know, and then it just gets you out of having to explain it every single time. So who knows? But then again, you know, the the problem is, when you, I mean, we interviewed uh, Darren Nesbitt. I watched an interview with him That was done about 15 years ago. Mm. And he tells the same stories, yet they're slightly different. There's an embellishment. He's a a marvellous raconteur. (laughs) He is. But in in our interview, he said that Robert Asher told him to go and get breakfast. Yes. In this interview from 15 years ago, he says Robert Asher told him to go and get a coffee. Over time, especially when it's 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, Mm. where you're telling these stories, and as you know, stories do get embellished. Yeah, oh yeah, of course. or, Or for dramatic effect. And then the embellishments part become part of the sense memory of it, exactly. and then become fact. So we'd never, we can never take any of these sayings unless they were done in an interview and they're logged and they're actually in a publication or you know whether it's an audio recording or a video recording of that person actually saying it at you know from the horse's mouth. We're never really going to know because you know George Baker might have been told by somebody that he wasn't Drake, and that's what he's been telling people. If he'd have asked Markstein, he might have got a different answer. So we've got second-hand information. We're never really going to know. And that's... we don't want to know. No,
1: that's exactly where I want it to be. Personally. Exactly. Think, yeah.
0: let, let the next generation of viewers have that discussion. If, yeah. Even if it is a discussion, will, will they go and watch Danger Man? Does, I'd, will it, it
1: matter? I'd, I'd quite happily be in a pub with mm. a, a John Drake guy and a, a, a No He Isn't guy mm. and just let them have at it. Yeah. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like sort of... Uh, but you want that. You, the thing is, you, you can say, oh, well,
0: so-and-so said that, oh, well, someone says that, but that's a pub argument, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it, it is. It, a, but that's exactly what it is. Pub, it, pub arguments are great. Yeah, but if you get to the core of it, you know, you've got very
0: little in the way of reliable witnesses. Hmm. You've got Mark Stein and you've got Magooan. And yes. that's it, really. Everybody else is Chinese whispers, second-hand information. Yeah. They're the two. You know, um, and you've got McGowan on record, you've got him on video talking about it and saying, no, it, you know, it wasn't Drake. But then, but then you've got Markster saying, yes, he was. I think it's like Schrodinger's number six He exists as both the state as Drake and as not Drake. Smoky depending on is your... the bandit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> depending on your point of view. Yeah. depending on how you wish to see the prisoner. So I, I don't want it to feel like it's a bit of a cop-out. We were never going to solve it, but I think it's nice to have that conversation and see what people think today and people think after... Well, the, the, the people have spoken. It's irrelevant. Mm. Who's the two? So this week we've got Welsh actor Kenneth Griffith. Yes. Originally, Kenneth Griffiths... Oh, why did you lose the S? His headmaster at school, who was also Griffith, advised him to drop the S. So he did. What strange advice. I know, but, it, but Griffiths is such a common Welsh name. Yeah. Griffith. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's... I don't know, it's
1: the singular version of it rather than the plural sounds. I suppose. It's like Keith Richards when he, he dropped the S, didn't he, for a Keith while? Richard. Keith, Keith Richard. Keith yeah. Richard. The... Mark Bolands.
0: Was he Bolands?
1: No, I just meant <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rod Holes. <laughs> <laughs> Keith
1: Barron's. I was just about to say Keith Barron's. <laughs> <laughs> it's been weeks since we've got a GT three reference. It. So he was he was born in Tenby.
0: Yes. Oh, down on the beautiful South Walian coast. Yes. And he was in the RAF. Uh, he was
1: wasn't he a regular in the Bolting Brothers comedies? Yes, he was in I'm Alright Jack. I, no, I think he was, he would have been in quite a few of them. He was. Uh, I think he usually just played. Hmm. That he, this is back in the day when they'd always have a, a Scottish character called Jock.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and and um, uh, or an Irish character called, yeah, <laughs> called O something, yeah. and then uh, they'd have a Welsh character, and it would be Kenneth Griffith. Well, well funny I, you
0: should say that about an Irish character called O something. Go on. Because one of the soldiers was going to be called
1: O'Toole. O'Toole. Yes. So,
0: Rob Fairclough. Who wrote the Prisoner book Yes, the official companion to
1: the classic TV series Which in is 2001 2001, wasn't it, yeah
0: um, Now there's a story about, first of all Kenneth Griffith writing the foreword, wasn't
1: there? Yes, yes, he insisted on uh, on he, he said, You can have the foreword But uh, you're not changing a, a, a comma It's got to be word for word Yes and, Okay, fine but There's a funny
0: story, isn't it, about O'Toole
1: Yeah, well let, let Rob tell it He's fabulous, you know. He's just such a nice man. And the halfway through the interview, the phone went,
2: and he picked it up. He said, "No, yep, yep, no, no, still here, still here." Boom, and he said, <laughs> "And he said uh, that was O'Toole. We're ringing each other up to check if we're still alive." you know? <laughs> So, so <Fantastic. laughs> he was great friends with Peter O'Toole, um, which, again, it's there's that
0: little bit in the girl who was deaf. You can tell that it's been edited because in the script it says you know, when he's asking where the marshall is, the original line was, Blasto tool, what does it get up to
2: down there, you know? Yeah. And it becomes Blasto raw." you know, yeah. because, because Patrick said, oh, well, I don't think we won the uh, you know, in-jokes in The Prisoner, which is hilarious because it's full of in-jokes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> only if Patrick made them, presumably. But.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> it's only funny if I
0: tell it. <laughs> I'd have loved to have met Kenneth Griffith. Oh,
1: he would have <laughs> Apparently he made some films in South Africa. Oh, he was very, very political. Mm. He seemed like some... Well, I was going to say camp. One of his most famous roles, of course, was in The Wild Geese. Yes. where um, yes. He was just... He took everything up to, not only 11, 12. Yeah. He just turned it right up. You and, think. and he had some of a resurgence, didn't he? With, he was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. It should be perfectly obvious that I'm neither. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, that, was that his last...? No, there was, very I, I think Holby
0: City was his last um, screen appearance. So, which one? Holby City. Oh, is it? Yeah. I've had so many people's last appearance.
1: I think it is. <laughs> yeah, it is or the bill. It's a genuine hospital. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: but fam- famously, he, he um, made a film called Hang Up Your Colours, which was about Michael
1: Collins, you know, the... Uh, he, was, he was a very passionate supporter of, of Irish independence... <laughs> mm. And there's a sort of bit of a revolutionary zeal about him. He made quite a few documentaries, I think,
0: Well, yeah, that, that weren't allowed to be put out. Well, yeah, Hang Up Your Colours. ITV, or ATV for the region at the time, refused to show it. Mm. So he took legal action and settled out of court, yeah. which allowed him to buy a house in London with the money he settled out of court with. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. But Hang Up Your Colours was finally shown on BBC One in 1993. So actually, you know, with the passage of time, 20 years later, mm. actually did get to be broadcast.
1: Yeah. He was. Um, he was. I mean, he's also in "Who Dares Wins" as the uh, the vicar who's trying to sort of uh, bankroll the uh, the terrorists. Yes, "Who Dares Wins" co-written by George Markstein. There we go. Nice link. How about that? Very nice that link. Done my own work. Yeah. But uh, he was. He was. He was fantastic. Kenneth Griffith.
0: So, oh, the other film I remember him from was "The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill and Came Down
1: oh. a Mountain" with Hugh Grant. Do you remember that? I remember. I, I don't think I've, I've seen it all the way through, but yeah, he would have been. He would be. He's a bit like Freddie Jones. Yes. Can we get? Can we get Freddie Jones or Kenneth Griffith to just sit in a pub? Yeah. And be in this because uh, because he was he was quite political and very sort of uh, you know like I say the, the sort of the, the spirit of the revolutionary in him. Mm. He got on very well, I think, with McGowan. Yes. And he yes. was. He's a very. It was a champion of him as well. I, we've we've learned, I think, over the, doing this that not everyone was quite on the
0: same wavelength with,
1: yeah. uh, and and sort of found him a, uh, thought he was going mad or he was just being uh, despotic. Hmm. Uh, but uh, but Kenneth was very much Kenneth. Ken was uh, was very much a sort of no, I get exactly what he's trying to do. I'm very supportive of him.
0: But the thing is, I think in Kenneth Griffith Magowan saw uh, somebody who shared the same kind of passion for telling stories, mm. for history, for almost like a rebellious streak to them as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a script editor as well. Uh, there was a, a 1986 miniseries, Shaka Zulu. I remember of, that. Yeah, he was script editor on that. Was he? Yeah, Kenneth Griffith. And, and also he was um, a writer as well. A varied career from 1938 up to 2003.
1: Yeah. One of a kind. Yeah, fascinating. I raise my glass. I mean, how the hell do we score this? <laughs> it's, uh, this is either a one or a six. <laughs> I, um, do you know what? I'm going to... Possibly as a way to counteract yeah. its, its meagre reputation as one of the lesser episodes mm-hmm. and um, all that. Throwing in on top of that, its status as the one episode that got us into this. Yes. Uh, and my... Enormous fondness hmm. I'm going to possibly Overdo this a little bit I'm going to give this a five Ooh You see I
0: Yeah I I know where you're coming from I think I'm going to give it a four And the reason I'm going to give it a four Is because yeah It's If the nostalgia If I add the nostalgia to it A little bit like With what Rick did yeah. With uh, Do Not Forsake Me I'm going to give it a four and a half Because yeah I, I think nostalgia it does play a part and it did get us into it and without that episode we
1: wouldn't be talking no now would we no it's uh it's it's the one i'd show i actually watched this my with my son mm. who always gets annoyed when i sort of sit down and watch these things because he wants he wants to watch his stuff yeah and so he usually leaves the room in strength <laughs> but he stayed for this one yeah and he it was it was a classic i was you know with sat on their knees on yeah. the floor uh kind of Hands on the floor as well, and sort of looking up. Yeah. Classic kid watching TV. Usually from a thing saying, don't let your kids watch TV yes, like this. Yes. They'll get square eyes. He, was, it was just, he couldn't get enough. And I thought, yeah, it's a, it, this has a fascination about it. Yeah. A real pull. Well, it's designed, I mean, again, it's designed for
0: children. Even the last line that number six says is an allusion to children's hour. Yeah. And I think that's probably how we should end this episode. Exactly. Good night, children everywhere. Free For All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton
1: and special thanks to Jemima Dunkar for the artwork. Please see you.
0: You can find us on Twitter
2: at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast
1: Free For All.